Good morning, Sister O'Fam. And those of you joining us online, we're glad you're with us as well. And uh, guys, Easter is coming. Like it's, it's right around the corner. And I, I'm just getting a little more excited every day. This conversation about the yard parties and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's gonna be amazing. And um, we're gonna celebrate like crazy. We're gonna have uh, extra services to try to you know, get everybody in with our limited capacity. So we'll do our Saturday night. And we'll do three services on Sunday, and um, you can come to all, I'm going to be at all of them. So, I mean, you could, you could come to all of them, be like me, of course, I, and it's my job, but I might do it anyway, even if it wasn't my job, I, I might be at all of them, because I love celebrating the resurrection of Jesus together. So, get excited about that. We're going to do that together. Um, we are jumping into this series we started last week called A Day in the Life of a Normal Christian, and we're going to take this a step further today. And the, the goal of this series is just to ask the question, what, what do normal Christians do? What, what should normal life look like for a Christian? And I think we need to keep in mind this understanding that <clears throat> there is the kingdom of God that has influence in the world through the church, that's us, and then there's the kingdom of the world. And the influence of the kingdom of the world comes from the enemy of God, Satan. And so we're either, we're either living by the rules of the kingdom of God or we're living by the rules of the kingdom of the world. Those are really the two choices. And so for people who choose to live by the rules of the kingdom of God, people who call ourselves Christians, our lives should look different, shouldn't they? If we're living by a different set of rules, our lives should look different. So what does it look like to be a Christian? And we want to make sure that we have the right definition of Christian. I think there's uh, a, a redefining of that term that has become popular in Christian subculture in America, where Christian just means somebody who goes to church sometimes and believes that they're going to heaven when they die. And that's kind of where, where the definition stops. <clears throat> and so a lot of people would say they're Christians. If I asked you, are you a disciple of Jesus? You might go, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm a disciple. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I'm a disciple. That's kind of next level, isn't it? Like, that's, like, that's like for really serious people. If I were to ask you, are you a Jesus-centered person? You might say, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I'm a G- Jesus-centered. Sounds like everything I do is, comes out of this conviction that Jesus is Lord. I don't know if I could define my life that way. But actually, in Scripture, the way Jesus talks about following him and the way that the apostles and the New Testament churches talk about what it means to be a Christian, all those are the same. The same it, it means the same thing to be a Christian or a disciple or a Jesus-centered person. To be a Christian is someone who has said, my life every day is going to be driven by my conviction that Jesus is Lord and my decision to give him his rightful spot as king of my heart. Like that's what my life is gonna be about. So what's normal for somebody who lives like that? Um, so we, we've talk, we talked a little bit last week about culture and, and culture is basically saying people like us do things like this. So what's normal for Christians? Well, we go to church, right? We sing songs, that's normal for us. We, we pray. We're going to talk about prayer next week. We read our Bibles. Like, like that's normal for a Christian. It's, if, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, th- that's abnormal. That's abnormal And for, for somebody who is a Christian. We serve. We worship. We love people. Today, what we're going to talk about is that uh, Christians meet strangers. We meet strangers. Where do we get this idea of what's normal for a Christian? Well, if Christian means a Jesus-centered person, then our idea of what's normal for a Christian better come from the life of Jesus, the words and work of Jesus. And so Jesus met strangers. 
like on purpose, intentionally engaged in conversation with strange people, people that he didn't know. And he, he did this uh, in different categories of people. So what we're going to look at today is the different types of people that Jesus intentionally engaged with and how he did that and the impact that it had on those people for Jesus to interact with them. And then what I, what I think that means for us, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to wear the name of Christ, what does it mean for us to live in a way that um, models the, the example that Jesus set for us? So we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and you can follow along there. We're going to uh, look at three different encounters that Jesus had with individuals in the Gospel of John and the impact that, that he had on their lives. So the first encounter is with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, what we need to know from the beginning is Nicodemus is an important person. He's a, he's a very important person in the Jewish world. Um, John 3.1 tells us he's a, he's a Pharisee and he's a ruler of the Jews. Like they, he's not just a Pharisee. He's actually, I mean, he's an important Pharisee. Even among the Pharisees, Nicodemus is important. I mean, he has power and wealth and authority. <clears throat> and I think it may surprise us a little bit to think about Jesus engaging with people like that because we know that Jesus came to, to serve the poor, right? One of Jesus's first sermons that he preaches uh, in Luke chapter four, Jesus unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he, he reads this prophecy about that he has come uh, to bring good news to the poor and to set the captives free and bring liberty to the oppressed. And we go, yeah, that's what Jesus is all about. He's all about the poor and the, and the marginalized and the oppressed. And absolutely he was. But it wasn't just material poverty and material oppression that Jesus was concerned about. He was concerned about spiritual poverty and spiritual oppression as well. And I think Jesus saw that there were a lot of people with wealth and power and authority who were still living under spiritual poverty and spiritual oppression. And he cared about their souls and their hearts just as much as he did the poor. And so Nicodemus is an important person, wealthy, powerful, and he has authority. And so he comes to Jesus at night and I don't, I don't know, I, I'm going to make some, some speculations here, but when I've had a long day and somebody uh, wants to talk to me at night, especially if it's a stranger, do you, do you get the, um, the unknown call on your phone at 8 p.m.? And what do you assume that is? I mean, this is somebody trying to sell me insurance or, you know, <clears throat> new home warranty or something like that. And I just don't answer those phone calls because I've had a long day. It's a, I'm not really looking to engage with new people at 8 p.m. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Instead of sending him away, Jesus sits down with him and they have a conversation. And Jesus begins to talk to him about what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus actually rebukes Nicodemus. He calls him out. He says, you're, you're Israel's teacher and you don't know. You don't understand what I'm talking. You should know this stuff. So even as he engages with important people, he engages with them differently than he would with somebody who doesn't have any power or wealth or authority. He says, you, you are responsible for the authority and influence that you have, and, and you should know this stuff. So he rebukes him, but he does it in a way that, that actually leads Nicodemus to lean in. Instead of leaning away, Nicodemus leans in to what Jesus is saying. And Jesus eventually wraps this conversation up by calling him to, he said, I want to teach you about heavenly things. Like you're not even understanding the earthly things I'm talking about. I'm calling you, I'm pointing you to something eternal. Let's, let's go, let's take the conversation there. And so in this process of engaging with an important person, Jesus holds him accountable to his position of power and wealth and authority. <clears throat> and he, he engages with him in such a way that creates curiosity and causes Nicodemus to lean in, 
So where does Nicodemus go from here? This, this conversation sort of wraps up around verse 15 in John chapter 3. And, um, and it's easy to think, well, well, that's it for Nicodemus. We're moving on to the next thing. But he shows up again in the gospel of John. And the next time he shows up, the Pharisees are all uh, worked up about Jesus. And, and, and they, they just, they just want to, you know, judge, jury, executioner. They, they, they want to call for his, his death. And Nicodemus actually speaks up on his behalf and says, hey, we don't, we don't condemn anyone without first examining them, making sure, like giving them a, a fair trial, basically. And he sort of separated himself from the other Pharisees when he did that by sort of standing for Jesus in that moment. He may not be a full believer at that time, but he's at least curious. He's still leaning in. And then at the end of Jesus's life, when he, he dies on the cross and someone has to take care of his body, the disciples have scattered because their lives are in danger as well. But two men show up to take care of the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, who is also a wealthy and powerful person, and Nicodemus. And so we see that through uh, this conversation that started in John chapter three leads Nicodemus to a point where by the time Jesus is crucified, he's ready to publicly align himself with Jesus. He's come a long way. Because Jesus didn't just write him off because he's wealthy and powerful and assume that he's, uh, he's He's lost and, and without hope. He looked at Nicodemus as someone who had influence, but who was probably had spiritual poverty and spiritual oppression in his life. And Jesus addressed that and called it out in a way that caused Nicodemus to lean in and, and, and developed his curiosity and called him to something higher. So how do we engage with people in our world who are wealthy and powerful, have influence and authority? I think it's sometimes easy for us to say, well, no, as Christians, we're supposed to focus on the poor and the oppressed. Listen, absolutely we are. Absolutely we are supposed to focus on the poor and the oppressed, but not to the exclusion of people with wealth and power and authority. Because just because those people aren't experiencing material poverty and oppression doesn't mean they're not experiencing spiritual poverty and oppression. And these are all people that God loves and cherishes and is pursuing actively. And when we can learn to see people of wealth and power and authority as people that God loves and cherishes and is pursuing, then maybe there's a chance for us to engage and interact with those people in a way that causes them to lean in to the truth about Jesus. We hold them to a high standard, for sure. Anybody that has influence and authority should be held to a standard, should be held accountable for what they do with that. But we do it in such a way that, that draws them into Jesus, not to us, but to Jesus. Jesus did that with important people. Jesus also spent time with risky people. There were people in Jesus's world, in Jesus's day, that just being seen with them in public was gonna damage his reputation. In fact, one of the harshest criticisms that the Pharisees had for Jesus was he is a friend of sinners. He eats, he actually sits down at, at a table and eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And that was their greatest criticism. They, they kind of used that to say, you, no one should listen to this guy. No one should be following this guy. Look at the kind of people he hangs out with. But Jesus ignored all of that, and he spent time with risky people. In the very next chapter, John chapter 4, Jesus has to go through Samaria. But he actually doesn't have to go through Samaria. He chooses to go through Samaria. And he has to stop at this town in Samaria. He doesn't actually have to. He chooses to stop at this town in Samaria. And he has to sit down at this well in Samaria. The well was like the Starbucks. It was the gathering place for the community. And so Jesus has to sit down at the well in Samaria. Actually, he doesn't have to. He chooses to sit down at the well in Samaria. And this woman comes along, and so Jesus has to talk to her. No, he actually doesn't have to talk to her. In fact, 
All the social rules would say, don't speak to this woman. He is a Jewish man. She is a Samaritan woman. They are as far apart socially as they could possibly be. He is not supposed to talk to her, but he chooses to talk to her. And he leads her on this journey. He starts with something very concrete and accessible. And he says, give me a drink of water. And from that simple request, he leads her on this journey of talking about her personal life and then to a place where he's, he, he tells her that, hey, there's a, there's a day coming when true worshipers are gonna worship in spirit and in truth, and it's not gonna matter where you are, where you're from. And her response to that is, I don't understand all that, but I know that someday the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna explain everything. And then Jesus gives her an incredible gift. And he says, I am he. Jesus doesn't reveal himself as the Messiah to very many people at all in scripture. He doesn't do it publicly because people could leverage that against him and try to bring about his death before it's time. But to a a very few handful of people, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. What a gift that he gave her. So she leaves from this encounter with Jesus. She goes back to her town and she tells every person in her town, guys, you're not gonna believe this guy changed my life. You have got to meet Jesus. And so he has to stay in this town in Samaria. He have to, he chooses to, and interact with all of these strangers in a way that many of them become followers after that. He engages with risky people. Who, who are the people in your world that if you were seen with publicly, it could damage your reputation? That you're on one side of this issue and there are people on the other side and they're, they're known for being on the other side. They wear the wrong kind of hat the wrong kind of t-shirt. And you know, if you sat down with them at a coffee shop in public, people would talk. People would say, hey, what? I I thought you were with us. What are you doing talking with them? Who are the people that you would just be really uncomfortable with? People that are very in a very different, maybe economic status from you, maybe different ethnicity from you. Maybe they just come from a different place. They have different beliefs. It would make you really uncomfortable to sit down with them. Those are the people that Jesus sought out. And I think he, he calls us to that. Look for the people that would make you uncomfortable and sit down with them. Because every single one of those people that would make you uncomfortable, every single person who's, who, who might damage your reputation if you were seen with them, those are people that God loves and cherishes and is pursuing with his love. And so we are called to be a part of God's pursuit of those people. Jesus spent time with risky people. Jesus also spent time with invisible people. If we skip ahead a few chapters to John chapter nine, we read there in the beginning of John chapter nine, that as Jesus is walking, it just says very simply, he sees a man who is blind from birth. Well, what's significant about that? I mean, sure, surely everybody saw the man who was blind from birth, right? No, I, I don't think that's actually true. I think this man had become invisible to most people. You know what it's like when you're walking in the city. If you're, if you're not in the city very much, you go to, to downtown Indy or downtown Chicago. I, I know when I take my kids down, one of the things that they notice is beggars, people who are asking for money, who, who are homeless and are, and are sitting. It looks like everything they own is in this little pile at their feet. We notice those people because we're not used to being in the city. But if, you're, if you live in the city, those people just become part of the landscape. They become invisible and you don't notice him anymore. And I believe that this man who was blind from birth probably spent every day of his life sitting out on a street corner with his hand out, and he became invisible. And not very many people saw him, but Jesus saw him. He saw him. And he not, he, he not only saw him, but he engaged with him, and he, he healed him from his blindness. 
And he sends this guy on what is an incredible, like it would make a good TV show, what happens to this guy after this, because he goes to the temple because he has to declare that he's been healed, but they don't believe him at the temple because that's impossible. No one can be healed if they're born blind. And so they don't believe that this is actually the guy who was born blind. So they call his parents in and they're like, listen, you, get, you gotta tell us this is not your son because uh, we don't believe that what this guy is saying. They're like, well, we don't have to tell you, but that is our son. And he was born blind, but we don't know how he got healed. We have, we have, no, we have nothing to do with that. And they, they end up kicking this guy out of the temple because they don't believe his story. And Jesus finds him later. And he has another conversation with him. And he gives them this, him the same gift that he gave to the Samaritan woman at the well. He reveals to him that he is the Messiah. What an incredible gift to this man that had gone his whole life being invisible to the people around him. And now he's not only seen, but he is healed and loved by the Messiah. Because every person that we ignore and neglect and looks and seems invisible in our world is somebody that is loved and cherished and pursued by God, every single one. And we have been invited by God into this pursuit. We get a chance to show them their value, show them that they are loved, show them that they are not invisible to God. We're the ones who get to show them that. Jesus spent time with invisible people. So what should be normal for a Christian? Normal Christians should spend time and interact positively with new people, strange people, people that we didn't know before. We would call these providential relationships. Providential in the sense that God makes appointments for us. That he he doesn't check with us and see what's on our calendar first. He just makes appointments for us. And our job is to be open and respond when God makes an appointment and make sure that we, we are there, we show up. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. This is what Paul writes to the church uh, in Colossae. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says, we have got to pay attention to how we treat people that aren't part of the church family. It's really important how we treat people. Now, Paul doesn't say you need to be prepared to share the gospel and convert someone in 60 seconds the first time you meet them. That's not what Paul is saying. Because that kind of thing, we kind of look at that and go, well, that's just not me. Like, I'm, I'm not that kind of evangelist. Paul's not actually saying that. Paul's just saying we need to pay attention to how we interact with people who are outside the church family. It's really important that we recognize that they are loved and cherished and pursued by God and that we treat them that way with dignity and value and worth. Be wise in the way we walk toward outsiders. Let our conversation always be full of grace and seasoned with salt so we know how to answer each person. That's what we're talking about here, that it's normal for Christians to interact with strangers. And when we do, we do it in a positive way, a way that causes them to lean in, to, uh, develops their curiosity about Jesus and points them to him. Our problem is we're afraid of strangers. <laughs> Stranger danger, right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what you're taught as a kid? Stranger danger. Don't, you don't, don't talk to strangers. You don't. And when I was a kid, it was you don't take candy from strangers. That was the big thing. Don't take candy from strangers. I'm like, I'll take candy from anybody. Come on. I don't, it doesn't matter who they are. Candy and I'm in. But we're afraid. And we've been taught to be afraid. And for some, in, in some cases, that's, that, that's legitimate. But what we need is a little bit of courage. And just a little bit. 15 seconds, really. 
15 seconds of courage is all it takes for us to recognize an opportunity to engage with somebody that is loved and cherished and pursued by God to interact with them in a positive way. 15 seconds of courage. Listen, if we take longer than 15 seconds to decide, we will talk ourselves out of it every time. We can always find a reason not to. And, and I, so I did an experiment on Facebook. Facebook's a great place for experiments, social experiments. So I asked this question, hey, what, what holds you back from engaging with uh, speaking to a stranger? And I got a lot of responses. You can see some of these responses. We'll just scroll through these. And uh, some of them were like, well, I just don't have time. And some of them were like, most of them, though, were was kind of along the lines of people don't like that. You know, it's going to freak people out or it's going to make somebody uncomfortable. So people don't, people don't like to, for a stranger to talk to them. And that's kind of, my, I got like 60 responses. And most of them were sort of in that vein of, I, I don't want to bother people. They're not going to like it. So then later on in the day, I posted another question. How do you respond when someone you don't know says hi to you? Complete stranger says hi to you. How do you respond? About 60 responses again. Some of you participated in this. I appreciate that. Um, you got to be careful responding to my Facebook page because I assume if, if you make it public on Facebook, I can make it public in church. So there you go. Uh, warning, uh, too late. Um, so 60 responses. Almost 100% of the responses were positive. If a stranger says hi to me, I say hi back. I kind of like it. I, it doesn't bother me a bit. I respond in kind. Almost 100%. Except for a couple of people that were just trying to be funny. Honestly. Do you, do you see the irony there? We don't engage with strangers because we're afraid that they're not gonna like it. It's gonna freak them out. It's gonna bother them. But if a stranger engages with us, it typically doesn't bother us. So maybe this idea in our heads that it, people don't like to talk to strangers is not true. In fact, the Harvard Business Review did a study in 2018 on, on asking personal questions or asking sensitive questions. You can find this online if you Google Harvard Business Review, um, asking sensitive questions. You can find this whole report. They did this uh, three-year-long study where they just said, why are we so hesitant to ask people personal or sensitive questions? And is our fear valid? And I could, I could go through some data for you, but it's kind of boring. But here's the end result. Our fear that people don't like to be asked personal questions is invalid most of the time. That most people don't mind nearly as much as we think they're going to. That it's mostly just about us. It's about our own insecurities is the reason why we don't engage with strangers or we don't ask personal questions. It's really about our insecurity. It has nothing to do with how they're gonna actually respond because most people don't mind, not nearly as much as we think they do. So hopefully that helps you have a little bit of courage, but, but we still need courage. We still need 15 seconds of courage because the fear is real. The fear is there. And courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing what's right despite fear. That's what courage is. And that 15 seconds of courage, you don't know what God can do with that. It's, it, the problem is we don't know what's going to happen. And when we don't know what's going to happen, a lot of us, our default method is to assume that something bad is going to happen. But if we trust that God can use us, that God actually loves and cherishes and is pursuing every person that we come in contact with, and that the Holy Spirit can actually do something good, we can assume that something good will happen if we push through the fear, 15 seconds of courage, and interact with complete strangers. Uh, about 20 years ago, maybe a little less, uh, Sarah and I went to opening day for the Atlanta Braves uh, at uh, Turner Field. 
and uh, stadium is packed. Guys, you remember that? We used to pack stadiums. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> and so we're sitting, you're sitting shoulder to shoulder, the way they designed those seats. I mean, you're, you're touching the person that's sitting next to you, uh, unless you're just a small person. And so uh, we're, we're sitting there, and it's, you know, it's an it's a exciting environment. And I just turned to the guy next to me and said, hi. And he said, hi back. And I said, where are you from? And he said, Indiana. I was like, oh. That's cool. What part of Indiana? And he said, oh, it's a little town you've never heard of called Portland. It's kind of near Muncie and Ohio. I was like, really? Did, did, you, did you go to high school in Portland? Did you go to Jay County High School? He said, how do you know Jay County High School? Yeah, I went to Jay County High School. I said, when did you graduate? He said, about 96. So I turned to my wife and I was like, hey, Sarah, you're not going to believe this, but I, there's a classmate of yours from high school sitting right next to me. <laughs> And so I just kind of stepped out of the way and she and her friend AJ had this kind of reunion because uh, they, they went to high school together and we were sitting next to each other in, in a, a packed out stadium. There's 50,000 people there and I'm sitting right next to a guy my wife went to high school with. What are the odds of that? And I never would have known if I hadn't just turned and said hi. Now, the temptation is for a lot of us to go, well, you're just an extrovert and it's easy for extroverts to engage with strangers. No, extroverts like to talk to people, but not necessarily strangers. It's still difficult to engage with a stranger, even for an extrovert, because strangers are unknown, and it's just human nature that we tend to avoid or make negative assumptions about the unknown. So yes, I am mostly extroverted, but still engaging with strangers is not easy. Uh, a couple months ago, I was in the coffee shop here, Darkside, uh, the new coffee shop in town, and I saw this guy that I did not know, had never seen before, uh, sitting there reading a book, and I recognized the book he was reading. And so I just walked over to him and said, hey, uh, nice book, or something stupid. Like, whatever I said, it sounded, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, well, that was awkward. And uh, like, nice book, or you're reading a book, or something dumb like that. And he goes, yes, I'm reading a book. <laughs> and I said, I'm reading the same book. Why, why, why are you reading it? What do you think of it? And so he says, well, I, I'm new to town. I just moved here, and um, I was looking for a church. So I found this, this men's Bible study, and they're reading this book for this Bible study. So I thought I'd grab the book and sign up for the study. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. You're not going to believe this, but I'm teaching that Bible study. That's my, that's my men's group. And so we, we had this connection. We, we sat and talked for a while, and, and uh, he, he's coming to the church now and, and you know, came to the class. Fifteen seconds of courage to talk to a complete stranger. That's really all it takes. And we've got to push through the fear because you don't know what God can do with that. One more story. Um, when we moved to Connecticut, we didn't know anybody, obviously, there. And um, all we had been told is that nine out of 10 people don't believe in God. Like, really, they're not, they're not just unchurched. They're, they're like anti. Um, nine out of 10 people. So you're not going to meet Christians just in the wild. But I decided I've got to get to know some people in this town where we live. And so the first, you know, first week I go into this coffee shop and um, I just start introducing myself to people. Hi, I'm Adam. What's your name? I'm new to town. And I ended up meeting um, five guys plus the owner of the shop whose name was Kevin. And I went back to the coffee shop the next day and those same five guys are in there and, and Kevin, the owner. And the next day, and I found out these guys are there every single day. And I, I ended up forming friendships with them and, and having spiritual conversation with them over a period of uh, two years there. 
And it was, it was incredible. But that first day, I got to tell you, was terrifying. I don't know these people. I just knew that they're probably not believers and that people in Connecticut are sort of like not real big fans of outsiders. And it was terrifying, but I pushed through. 15 seconds of courage. My name's Adam. What's your name? Uh, I said that was the last story. I lied. There's, uh, so uh, my friend Holly, her daughter was having surgery a couple weeks ago. And the surgeon came in, you know, before and, you know, you're, you're about to go under anesthesia and all this stuff. And do you have any questions? And, and then he's like, all right, we're ready to roll. And he was walking out. And Holly said, hang on just a second. Can, can we pray? Do you mind if, would you pray with us before we, we go back? And he's like, sure. And so she stopped and, and she prayed for her daughter and for the surgeon. And that guy would just be a part of that. And she told me later, she said, I was terrified to do that. She's like, that's not me. I don't, I don't ask complete strangers to pray with me. But she pushed through that fear, 15 seconds of courage, and she had prayer with the surgeon before her daughter's surgery. Um, one more story. Uh, <laughs> because this happens so much. Listen, uh, so my friend Matt was driving to work, and he saw a guy that he sort of knows from his, the big company that they work for. He was going the other way on the interstate, and he just realized, well, I don't, I don't know that guy very well. I haven't talked to him in a long time. I'll just call him and see and just check in. So he, he called the guy, and they're both just driving to work. And he says, hey, this is Matt. Uh, just, just wanted to check in, see how you're doing. I saw your truck. And the guy was like, uh, man, this, this has got to be God's timing. And so he just unloads this whole story of the things that have been going on in his life for the past few months and the, just the family um, challenges and the stress and the anxiety and the pain and financial stuff. And, and he just said, I don't... I don't know if you're a praying person, but Matt, would you, would you mind if, if, could we pray? And Matt was like, I'm absolutely a praying. I love to pray, man. We really, I believe that God is in this. And so Matt has prayer with this guy over the phone while they're on their way to work. They talk for 45 minutes because 15 seconds of courage. He saw the opportunity and he just made the call. He didn't wait long enough to talk himself out of it. Listen, God can work. Look, I, here's, here's something you need to know. I have probably had bad experiences doing this. Probably. I just don't remember them. I have probably made a fool of myself on multiple occasions and people walked away scratching their heads. I just don't remember those. I remember the positive ones. Like, because it's a stranger. So they go away and they think I'm an idiot. Who cares? <laughs> but when, when God actually steps in there and does something, I mean, sometimes friendships are formed that way. Sometimes people are just given a glimpse that they are loved and cherished and pursued by God. And we, we get to participate in that. It's incredible that we're invited into this thing that God is doing in the world. It's 15 seconds of courage. So I just want to point out three um, different pe people groups in your life that you need to uh, show some courage with. Uh, first is your neighbors. Uh, as Justin said, you, you need to know your neighbors. It's normal for followers of Jesus to know the names of their neighbors, to know what they do, uh, to know their spiritual background, if they're, if they're church people or not. Uh, it's, that's normal for Christians because we love our neighbors. And so we want to get to know them. You have this opportunity coming up with Easter to connect with your neighbors in a new way. And so you're, you're, we're going to ask you to come get one of these baskets and take these invitations to your neighbors and host an Easter party in your yard. We're going to ask everybody to do that. And some of you don't know your neighbors. And this idea terrifies you. But just bake the cookies and pray for 15 seconds of courage to walk across the street offer an invitation, because I believe God can work through that. So your neighbors. The next is service workers, uh, just the people that um, 
ring you up at the grocery store or stocking the shelves at the grocery store or uh, check you out at CVS or um, wherever else, you know, at the restaurant, the, the waiter or the cooks or whatever. These are people that they, they're sort of a captive audience. They're at work and you have an opportunity just to engage with them in a positive way. Listen, I'm not telling you that you have to share the gospel with every person that rings you up at the grocery store. I'm just saying be, interact positively with them. Like I have, I have had prayer with people in the checkout line at the grocery store, and it takes some courage to do that. Don't think because I'm a pastor that comes easily to me. It doesn't. There's some fear there. I am just like you in that I worry that people are going to think I'm an idiot. But I, I push through. 15 seconds of courage. Hi, my name's Adam. How are you doing today? What's your name? And most of these people are wearing name tags, so it's really easy. If you call them by their name, they love it. It's awesome. You know, you go into CVS, you see the same people at CVS every time. If you go to the one here in Cicero, it's the same people every time. Do you know their names? You should. They have name tags on. Get to know them. Say hi. Just let them know, hey, every month when my $10 CVS reward thing kicks in, I'm going to be here buying M&Ms. So just watch for me, you know? So uh, service workers, interact positively, and then just people in the community, people that you see when you go to the gym, when you're walking on your own, because you're walking now, because we, we talked about this last week, that you should be walking, so you're walking now. Um, people you, you know, that you see on a regular basis, whether it's at work or just in, in the community, just interact positively. Learn people's names. Now, why, why am I making such a big deal out of this? I think Jesus made a big deal out of this. If you read the Gospels, he interacts with strangers all the time. And it's so easy for us to go, well, he's Jesus. But he's not doing this um, like just accidentally. He is setting an example for us of what we should do. He is teaching by his lifestyle what kind of people we're supposed to be. And I think Jesus wants us to interact with important people, with risky people, with invisible people. And, and our prayer should be, God, open my eyes to the people around me so that I can interact with them in a way that causes them to just lean in to who Jesus is, to see something in me that causes them to say, what, what is wrong with that person? <laughs> why, why do they have so much peace? Why do they have so much joy in their life? Friends, God has given us an incredible gift a relationship with him through his son. And when we dive into this relationship in a way that we're willing to call ourselves a Christian and a disciple and a Jesus-centered person, all means the same thing, then the result of that lifestyle is peace and joy. And it's an incredible gift. And we have an opportunity to show other people that they're invited too, that they're loved too, they're pursued too. It's a chance to get people to lean into who Jesus is. So we're gonna pray. That's actually what we're gonna, I'm gonna invite you to pray. Would you stand? I invite you to pray uh, this prayer with me that God would just open our eyes to the people around us and give us 15 seconds of courage. Please join me. Father, I thank you for the example of Jesus. And I pray that for me personally, you would help me to see the invisible people in my life, in my world. The people that I typically just neglect, ignore, they're part of the landscape. Help me to see them. Help me to see them as people who are valued and cherished and pursued by you. And give me 15 seconds of courage, Father, just to say hi, learn their name, and, and create an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do something. Would you do that in me? And God, I pray this for my whole church family, that you would do this in all of us. That the the love and gratitude that we feel towards you because of Jesus would just overflow out of us 
in ways that have an impact on complete strangers? Would you do that in us and through us? And, and through this, would you bring glory to your name and bring people into your kingdom? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. We're, we're just excited that we get to worship together, our God who deserves this, that we get to sort of live out the gospel in this way. And I just want to encourage you, if, you if, if the Spirit's working on your heart, that you need to take a step of faith of some kind, if you need to be baptized into Christ, if you need to join a microchurch, uh, join a class, if you need to get involved in serving in some way, we'd love for you to reach out to us. You can text uh, the word respond to the number that's going to show up on the screen here. And uh, one of our pastors will reach out and follow up, or you can just find one of us out in the lobby afterwards. And we would love to connect with you um, and help you take that step of faith. But as we close, just continue to um, meditate on this call to, to see the value in other people and to step into it with a little bit of courage.